1: Plug in and get
0: connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation.
1: The Mekong is one of the world's great rivers, covering a distance of nearly 5,000 kilometers from its source on the Tibetan Plateau in China to the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. The river flows through six countries, China, Myanmar, Thailand, Lao PDR, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Its basin is home to one of the richest areas of biodiversity in the world, with more than 20,000 plant species and 850 fish species discovered to date. An estimated 80% of the nearly 65 million people living in the lower Mekong River Basin depend on the river and its rich natural resources for their livelihoods, making sustainable development crucial for the environment and communities living in the basin. Today, we'll dive into the Mekong River and specifically its basin, where it empties into the ocean with multi-time Talk Travel Asia guest, author, and all-around great guy, Nick Ray. I'm Scott Coates in Bangkok, and with me is
0: Trevor Ranges, just a few hundred meters away from the Mekong River, as a matter of fact.
1: Cool. And a few hundred meters away from Nick Ray, who is somewhere else in the city, I think. So you're very close.
0: Yeah. You know, it's pretty cool that, you know, doing this episode, uh, as I was writing out our notes, it's, it's so amazing. Like, I've been to so many places on the Mekong I didn't even realize it and I'm sure you have as well and just looking at a map like it it is obviously such a crucial like like lifeline for the economy economy (laughs) the economy you know from fishing to agriculture to tourism I can't even imagine we're going to scratch the surface on a lot of things with Nick he's so insightful we're going to get a lot of information here but there's a lot to talk about.
1: Yeah absolutely and what I always loved about the Mekong one of the the stats is that it's the second most active river in the world in terms of species living in terms of species living in it only behind the Congo River. There's about a thousand different species living in the Mekong River, I always heard. So that's pretty cool. The second most active. So we were thinking about where we have experienced the Mekong River. And I think both of us came up with surprisingly big Lists. i've been in the golden triangle in thailand down the river to shang kong many times on bikes motorbikes vans uh chang san i've been to chang kong which is the thai town where people cross over to lao i've done picnics kayaking and even tubing there i've been to nice. nakom panom in northeastern thailand that was really cool i've been to ubon Ratchathani in the far east of thailand on the river I cycled about 250 kilometers in 2020 along the Mekong on the Thai side in Lully province, which was really neat nice, to yeah. Nong Kai that borders uh, the capital Vientiane. About 20 years ago, I took a slow boat for two days from Huay Sai in Laos to Pak Beng and then to Luang Prabang. I've been in Champasak, 4,000 islands in southern Laos, uh, of Penicourse, and I've jogged along it in Vientiane. How about you, Trevor? Where have you experienced the Mekong? Gosh,
0: yeah. You know, I did. You, you mentioned a few that I'd been to, like Chang kong um that I didn't even think of um, on my list. Mm-hmm. But just because oftentimes, like the Mekong's, like there, it's everywhere where you, you're on some amazing vacation. Because you don't necessarily go to these places just because the Mekong is there, but sometimes you do. Sometimes you go there specifically for that, right? Right. So, like Luang Prabang, I've been to a dozen times, and it's one of my favorite places in the world. And the Mekong is part of the city's charm but uh it's a beautiful place in and of itself and then just south of there uh, vang viang which is famous for tubing you mentioned tubing earlier further right river. Right. you know i didn't actually tube there but vang viang is actually really beautiful and Vientiane, which is the capital of laos so those three oh and you mentioned southern laos you went to watpu yeah champasak correct yeah there's uh, awesome. angkor, we did an episode like a, a pre angkorian but the, the temple that's there now is like angkor era temple going up the hillside and, and the whole time you hike up you could just turn around and look down and then mekong is like right at the foot of the temple it's it's pretty spectacular uh wat pu yeah uh, kayaking in the flooded forests uh just across the border in cambodia there's a small village called priya rumkel where the mekong first enters cambodia and there's flooded forests that you can kayak like slalom skiing downhill through trees it's it's pretty cool okay. experience um huh. and then i you know, all the way down here to Phnom Penh. And I even took a boat once from Ho Chi Minh City up to Phnom Penh. So I've done uh, quite a stretch of the river too. So I think between you, me, and Nick, uh, this Google map that I'm going to put together is going to have a whole lot of pins dropped in it.
1: Yeah, there's just going to be pins, stars, and hearts everywhere. We have covered quite a bit. So if you're listening to this show and you enjoy it, please give us a positive rating on the platform you're using. Or be like Doran S., who's one of our patrons. What is a patron, you ask? Great question. They are people who sponsor the show financially. And every two weeks in between these episodes, they get a little bonus something something. So go to patreon.com, search for the, the Talk Travel Asia, and throw us some financial love. Get those special episodes and help keep us going. So anything else before we bring in Nick Triber?
0: No, let's see what Nick's got to say. Uh, he's an expert on all these things. I'm excited to, to hear from
1: him. Nick Ray is about as well-versed in Southeast Asia as one could be. He's the longtime author of The Lonely Planet Cambodia, Myanmar, and Lao Guidebooks, and has contributed to other travel books about Vietnam and lots of other areas in Asia. Additionally, he helps run a travel company, Hanuman Travel, based in Cambodia with his wife and team, as well as working as a fixer with their other business, Hanuman Films. He joins us online from Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Hi there, Nick. Hello. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. We we're just saying that you are officially the most frequent guest we think this is your fourth time so thanks for coming back yet again what are you up to these days
2: well that's incredible thank you it's a real honor glad to be the uh, most numerous guest um yeah what's happening these days well you know obviously we've had the huge announcement in cambodia that there's no more quarantine and uh, open without restrictions so uh, we're sort of anticipating some growing interest uh, for the rebound of tourism from i suppose january People that need to travel will come back earlier if they've got family or friends here or, or, or jobs. But I think because it's so close to Christmas now, most people won't really book until uh, January onwards. But we, we expect a, a mini bump. So sort of uh, strapping ourselves in, seatbelts on, you know, ready for the ride. It's going to be pretty interesting after nearly two years without tourists.
0: This show will just be coming out uh, in December, I believe. So uh, very timely for people to get excited about travel again. And and as Scott said, like you've been on the show four times, so you're a great guest to talk about uh, the region and all the cool things that people can do around here. So for those who haven't listened to the episodes you've been on before, why don't you give people a three-minute overview of your background, uh, particularly perhaps as it pertains to the Mekong area?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, I've been living and working in the Mekong region now for more than 20 years. So my my day job, if you like, is uh, writing Lonely Planet Guides, as you mentioned in the introduction. So I've worked on about 10 editions of the Cambodia Guidebook. I've worked on... uh, about seven or eight editions of Vietnam, about four editions of Laos and also a couple of Myanmar editions. So I've travelled all over the, uh, the length and breadth of the river and seen it in all those different countries. Um, I also obviously do a lot of film production work. So I find myself out scouting a lot uh, up and down the Mekong. So I've scouted locations in, in Cambodia, in Vietnam, in Laos. So ranging from project, projects like uh, Tomb Raider with Angelina Jolie and Daniel Craig, all those years ago, makes me sound very old, uh, right up to things like uh, Top Gear Vietnam, that, that kind of iconic special where they converted motorbikes into amphibious and various other projects involving, you know, celebrity chefs like Gordon Ramsay and and uh, other famous people. So it's been, yeah, it's been great fun. I mean, the Mekong region is, is fascinating and diverse, as we know, whether it's uh, peoples and cultures, uh, languages and cuisine, it's there's so much to offer between the different countries that, you know, making a trip from sort of north to south, using the Mekong as your, as your sort of guiding force is, is really an interesting thing to do. I mean, it's obviously not possible to follow the entire river. <laughs> it's pretty tough in China, up where it's the Lankang and very narrow and full of gorges. But certainly, once you come down into, uh, into Yunnan province and Jinhong southwards, where it's very navigable, you've got a, a really a great possibility of, of following this amazing river right down to the, uh, the South Sea.
1: That's incredible. And so we're obviously chatting about the Mekong River and with a bit of focus on its basin in Vietnam, do really to have a, a new guidebook coming out. What is that book and what was your role in that?
2: Yeah, that's right. The new Vietnam guide's coming out imminently. Basically, um, I was working on the Mekong Delta chapter, rather aptly. So that was um, basically all those those provinces to the south of Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon. So, you know, dealing with some of the big cities like Can Tho and uh, Mito and other places there, Chow Doc. But also delving further into uh, some of the off-the-beaten-track places like the bird sanctuaries you have down there and also some of the islands off the coast. You've got all these new kind of up-and-coming islands like the Pirate Islands. Um, Pirate you've got, Islands. Um, yeah, the Pirate Islands. Great name, <laughs> isn't it? I think it's named because there there may be treasures yeah, hidden there. But <laughs> Yeah. So the, there's, there's the pirate islands and, and a few other small islands that really remained off the travel radar uh, for many years and are only just being explored by mainly domestic uh, Vietnamese travelers, not yet many foreigners. So, yeah, I basically did what my favorite thing to do is, which was uh, rented a motorbike in Chau Doc and basically just drove around the Mekong Delta for a few weeks. So really was mm-hmm. what was, I suppose, most fascinating in that case for me was to see the amount of change because I hadn't probably covered that region for Lonely Planet. For maybe a, nearly a decade. So, maybe with the exception of Chao Doc, I hadn't been back to places like Canter for so long. And it basically had grown by about three times its size. You know, when I was last there, it was a sort of, it was an important delta hub of perhaps 300,000 people. Now it was a bustling metropolis of a million plus. So, you know, they were buildings were going up high-rise, you know, these were really significant cities that had been more like oversized towns on my previous visit. Wow,
0: yeah, you made a couple of points there. First, you answered uh, what our next question was, which is one of your, what do you love to do along the Mekong? And it was, you said it to, to rent a motorbike and go explore, which is pretty awesome. I didn't know that you could explore that much of it by bike, but then you mentioned this big city and I don't know which city I went to, but a few years back, I took a riverboat up uh, from Ho Chi Minh City here to Phnom Penh and uh, we stopped in some big town and I was amazed and those cities are obviously connected to the rest of Vietnam by roads not just by the river you know when you're traveling by river you kind of get the skewed perspective but uh, that's cool that you got to explore back there again
2: yeah no definitely I think one thing to that's key if you're motorbiking or obviously even more so cycling in the delta is really being aware of of the smaller roads you know obviously when you you tend to look at a map or you look at google maps or whatever tools you choose to follow it's going to basically mainline you down these massive roads and they're not to be honest much fun you know big trucks big buses and so on the, the great thing in vietnam is all the smaller roads you know the, the kind of ancillary little roads they're all surface they're all tarmac so you can actually just kind of go left right left right and choose to follow canals and and small roads and it's absolutely beautiful so i think that would be the main advice really is if you're doing it on two wheels is steer clear of the highways and go for the smaller roads
1: nick i, I have kind of a visual picture of obviously the basin is where it's going to get super super wide and pretty, pretty darn flat. But what are kind of the highlights thinking about people who might want to dedicate a bit of their trip to that area?
2: Well, I think for me, uh, cante, as I mean, apologies to any Vietnamese listeners for my appalling <laughs> pronunciation. It's a it's a challenging language to pronounce. But yeah, cante, as Westerners might say, cante, cante, is that's kind of, you know, the capital, if you like, the, the sort of the hub of politics, uh, social life, education, religion in the Delta region. So that's a really interesting place because around there you've got the floating markets. So you've got the very famous, iconic Kairang market. And Kairang is is still quite incredible to see even after all these years. You know, everything is on water. So all the, all the sellers come in their boats full of, you know, fruit, vegetables, flowers, um, livestock, you name it. And the whole market is floating on water. And so as a tourist, you can basically uh, travel there by boat or by road, then by boat, and you can get in and among it. So you really are in, a, in something that isn't simply a tourist attraction. It is genuinely the biggest sort of wholesale market in the Delta. So I think that is just a massive eye-opener for people because it's so unlike anything they've seen in their in their own homes or culture. Um, and also the countryside around Kanto is very beautiful. You know, the, the rice farming, um, you've got quite a lot of nice sort of... Uh, Flashbacker hostels and, and little eco lodges around there. so that's a that's a really good hub. A lot of people also as, as Trevor alluded to, you know traveling by by boat uh, from the Mekong Delta into Cambodia. So one of your main gateway towns there becomes Chow Doc. Chow Doc's very interesting as well because you've got a mixed population of Vietnamese Khmer and also Cham. so you've got some uh, you know cham mosques there and, and cham floating villages. So Chow Doc's got a lot of interesting things around it and some some quite nice old, French uh, era architecture from the colonial period so and it, you've got again you've got this nice mix of accommodation where if you want to sort of live in a bit of style you've got the Victoria hotels that have been there for many years but you've also got um, kind of more like some backpacker hostels now and, and some out of town almost like uh, homestay style places so I think that you know that kind of central axis of, um, of the Mekong Delta through Kanto and down to Chao Dok and into Cambodia remains very popular but um, obviously you can go further afield and, you know, some people do go off the beaten track into, into some of these smaller places. Like you can go right down south somewhere like Kamau. I mean, not many tourists go there. I mean, it is pretty far to go. I mean, you might get occasional French tour groups exploring down that far. But, you know, you have got some beautiful river canals down there, some amazing rice belts. And then for, you know, end up at Vietnam's southernmost point, about 100 kilometers to the south. So I think the, the thing with the Delta is most people just toe dip. You know, they they basically do a day trip from Saigon or they do a a two or three day uh, excursion combining Ho Chi Minh and Phnom Penh. But you don't often get that many people really delving deep into the deep dive into the Mekong, if you like, doing a week or more, but that can be, can be really rewarding because that's where you see lifestyle, you know, farming, countryside. And as I say, these, these smaller roads where they probably don't see many tourists, you know, they see the odd motorbiker or cyclist. And that makes it really fascinating because you've got a very warm and friendly welcome. The one final place I'd mention that, that's quite nice as well, particularly if you like the coast, is obviously down near the Cambodian border at Hatien, just over from Kampotten Cape. That's a really nice okay. area because, again, you're, you're kind of on a coastal feel there. You are still at the, the southernmost point of the delta, if you like, but it does feel kind of like a, a sort of cross between a beach town and a delta town. So you've got beaches nearby and you've got quite a nice uh, seafood scene there. You know, that's where a lot of Vietnam's uh, southern catch is coming through. And so, yeah, they, they, these kind of places like Hatien is the gateway to Quoc the island and also mm-hmm. um rakia is the gateway to places i mentioned before like some of these new islands that are up and coming so there's, there's a lot to do in the delta and I, I think the key is that once you go beyond Kento and chao dock very untouristy so it can be quite rewarding
0: i'm looking at a google map here as we're talking because uh i remember even when I took that boat up, and I don't remember, I think it was four days, three nights that we took on the, the journey. But you have a lot of time to, to read and, and just watch the scenery go by, and um, I spent a lot of time during that trip looking at Google Maps, and I dropped a bunch of pins, and I'm and I'm looking at some of the places you mentioned, like Tien, which is where you get the boats to Fuqua and but there's a what's it? Oak Ao. that's the ancient cambodian archaeological site that's one of the earliest uh, have you been out there did you see what's it looks like there's a little town there
2: yeah that that's an interesting place i went there um on the on the last trip i mean it's basically you know part of the the so-called funan civilization yeah. which spanned a lot of what is now southern cambodia and, and the mekong delta area so you've got important funan sites like uh Angkor Barai and Phnom Da across the border in Cambodia. And Okeo was actually the port of Funan, the seaport. Now, one look at Google Maps will show you how much land territory has changed in that period, because, you know, Okeo is now a long way inland. You know, you're talking about 20, 30 kilometers, nearly uh, exactly. So it's way inland, but that was actually the main seaport back in the day. So that was actually um, one thing that's been interesting there is when they've done excavations there, they found Roman coins, Iranian pottery, etc. So it shows you that there was this interconnectivity between the ancient world. You know, we always tend to give Marco Polo the credit for being, you know, the first European to hit China. But the chances are there were Europeans reaching this far much earlier, but they just never came home. They probably settled there, you know, stuck around or just didn't make it back.
1: I understand, I've never been, but when you look at the map, it looks like you can access the basin in a couple hours from Ho Chi Minh, is that right?
2: Yes, exactly. So your first gateway town is Mito, And that's where a lot of the day trips sort of go for the kind of old, you know, the old style of Sin Cafe, Kim Cafe tourism that you may remember with all the backpackers used to do. So you'd book a very cheap day tour, which would take you down to the Delta in a shared minibus. You know, you'd see a a kind of coconut candy factory. You'd do a little boat trip on the river and you'd have lunch. Um, So that's the that's the easiest point to get to, but perhaps not Mm -hmm. the most authentic, shall we say. And then people who are going on an on a overnight trip, two days, one night, or three days, two nights, will probably go to Canto and then maybe even on to Chow Dok. So, But really beyond those ones, a lot of people don't go much further. So as soon as you head kind of south of Kanto and down, you know, down to those areas, they're like um, Bakliut and places like that, you really don't see many tourists at all.
1: So that's what I was going to ask is how long do you need? So you've sort of laid it out that the common trip is two days, one night or two nights. Is it somewhere that people should be thinking about spending some more time?
2: I would say um, cyclists, it's a great area because, you know, it's it's pancake flat. That's not to say all cyclists should be terrified of hills, but, you know, compared to <laughs> cycling Sapa and, you know, the Hasyang the, um, and the northern provinces, it will be a lot easier on the legs. So it's, it you know, maybe for kind of amateur cyclists or people who just want a gentle cycling holiday it really is the perfect place and also you can connect it with boats so you know you don't have to cycle the whole time you can put the bikes on boats and do some of you know do some of the legwork on the water if you're going on a motorbike yeah I would say that probably in, a, in about a week you can cover quite a lot of the key areas I mean as I say I think I was obviously because I was spending more time researching and, and looking at places I was more like between two and three weeks. But yeah, I think in in a week you could cover the highlights. And then, of course, you can easily end up in somewhere like Hatien or Raxia and then take the boat across to Phukok. And then you have a a chill out time on the beach at the end, you know, to recover. And then you can fly back to Saigon or or soon you'll be able to carry on into Cambodia because they're building the international boat port to link with Kampot. So all these new options will open up
0: yeah that Kampot port or being able to get to fuqua or across to Hatien from cambodia all of that was just about to happen right before COVID. i remember so hopefully that gets back on track soon otherwise you know I, I never thought about really exploring that area like on a on a bike even like a push bike you know and it's cool that there's boats because again like i took the boat from ho chi minh to phnom penh and a, a, a colleague of scott and mine had told Scott that he thought there was all sorts of factories and stuff on the Vietnam side and it wasn't so nice, but I, I, had a really nice boat ride. I don't remember it being overdeveloped. We went to that town where there was the floating market, uh, which was really cool. Uh, We did lots of interesting day trips along the way, but you're sort of stuck on the boat. You know, you get to go off and do excursions, which is great, but you ultimately, you have to be on this boat and then you ultimately have to go to to Cambodia. But you mentioned like other boats, if you're riding a bicycle, is it possible to get a boat from one town to the next town and and knock out a couple hundred Ks by floating rather than pedaling? Are there local boats for...
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, still, they still do have boats. They have some kind of fast hydrofoils. I mean, as the roads have got better, and of course, as bridges have spanned the river, they do tend to, people tend to go by buses and so on. But, they, you know, there, there has always been the option of those kind of fast, you know, uh, river boats, like the, similar to the ones you have in the, had in the Tonle Sap in Cambodia, mm-hmm. you know. So they've been operating to places like Mito to Kanto and so on. Um, So yeah, that that is one way to do it. You can also charter, you know, local wooden boats. So that's the other way, is to kind of make your own discussions with, with boatmen at each place and work out how far you want to go and how you want to do it. I mean, the other thing that's interesting, because you've you know obviously mentioned these sort of more sophisticated cruises between uh, Ho Chi Minh and Phnom Penh. I mean, the one thing that's really good about those, you've obviously got, you know, Aqua Mekong, you've got um, the Jayavarman the 7th, you know, the Jahan. Um, sadly, no longer the Pandora, as you probably know, the Pandora has become a, a victim of uh, COVID-19 and, and bankruptcy. But those kind of boats, you know, the great thing about them I've always said to people, and you've alluded to it by talking talking. talking about factories and things like that, is there is a really good contrast between the Mekong Delta in Vietnam and then the Mekong on the Cambodian side. You know, you really notice when you cross the border because the Vietnam side is very heavily populated, you know, a lot lot of towns of significant size, a lot of agriculture with multiple rice harvests, maybe three per year. Cambodia you may only get one, sometimes two rice harvests a year. So if you're crossing that border in the dry season, you know, kind of in March or April, it really is a, a notable border. You know, you really you're going from a kind of lush green landscape where there's multiple irrigation, mass harvesting, and lots of these big centers and lots of life and traffic on the river. And you cross over into Cambodia and it gets a lot quieter. You know, the the, the fields are dry because they're not having multiple harvests. Um, You know, the river traffic drops significantly. It gets much quieter. It really is. Even though it's a river and, you know, the borders artificial, it does make for quite a stark contrast.
1: Interesting. Well, look, we were wanting to then think a bit more about other areas along the Mekong River where you've been because we know you've covered so Many of them. So, what's the northernmost point on the Mekong that you've been, and and how or why were you there?
2: Yeah, blimey, that's a fair question. Um, I I think it would be uh, Jin Hong in uh, China in Yunnan. So I yeah I ended up going there on a. You're just reminding me of some crazy old days of backpacking, which is what we're here for, of course. <laughs> Not all the luxury mm-hmm. cruises. So I was uh, yeah I was traveling overland from uh, Kunming to to Laos back in 1998. So. I caught the sleeper bus from hell, from Kunming to Jinhong, which I think was about 36 hours or something back in those days because the roads were so bad. And uh, yeah, got out and spent then a a day or two in Jinhong, which is uh, quite a significant town on on the Mekong in China. And then I carried on south, so you had to still go another three hours to somewhere like Mongla or Mengla near the border. And then you crossed Mm -hmm. into Boten, which is the border post in northern Laos. And then i ended up i think at luang nam ta so that was you know that was one of those journeys that when you're younger in your backpacking days you just you know just do it without batting an eyelid it's just perfectly normal i think if you tried to get me to go on a 36-hour sleeper bus now i would i would protest loudly (laughs) it's definitely not something i'd be quite as comfortable with now but you know in, in those days it's just it's just part of the travel experience so yeah i mean i think um you know china obviously the mekong without straying into politics, I know that's not necessarily a good thing, but you know, obviously China, there's been a lot of damming on the Mekong up there. So that's having impacts downstream. And so when I was there, I think it was pre damming still. So it was seeing the Mekong in full flow in Jin Hong and so on. But um, certainly with, with the advent of 10 or more dams on the, what they call the Lan Kang or the upper Mekong in China, I think, uh, you know, that, that we're, we're certainly seeing an impact down here in Cambodia. I've been up on the Tonle Sap Lake uh, the past week, scouting for some BBC shows and you know fishermen are talking about drastically uh, lower fish stocks you know unpredictable water levels high water now when it should be low water you know late pulse surges just it's kind of a little bit uh, out of sync shall we say uh, the the Tonle Sap and the Mekong right now which is obviously going to be a challenge for the future
0: from there i guess Laos would be the next spot although like the Mekong borders Thailand and Laos and then skirts Myanmar there for a second. What are some of your other favorite uh, upper Mekong? I guess this is an upper Mekong. This would be middle Mekong. What are some of your favorite middle Mekong destinations?
2: Yeah. <laughs> middle Kong, uh. middle Mekong. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as you, I haven't got the map in front of me, but I know what you mean. So, yeah, you've got that interesting little bit where it does also uh, sort of go down the border of Myanmar for a short, short stretch. I mean, I for me, I've, I quite like, um, obviously the you know, Luang Prabang, what can we say? That's one of the greatest, greatest destinations on the whole length of the Mekong. I mean, I won't go into much detail there because we've had whole separate shows on that. And, you know, we all know how wonderful it is, but that's a very magical place on the Mekong. Um, I do also like, you know, I, I always enjoyed the boat ride from the Golden Triangle down to Luang Prabang, you know, like the Luang Say Cruise or similar, um, or Shampoo Cruise, those different kind of two-day, one-night boats. And I, I always enjoyed stopping in Pak Beng because, you know, it was like a, a proverbial one-horse town, but, you know, you right. basically just had a whole string of guest houses sort of from the dock going upwards. And, you know, everyone everyone's life focused around the arrival of these boats and backpackers would be... Disgorged off the boats, they would wander to their guest houses. You had quite a, a good little vibe there because everyone knew they were probably only going to be there one night, so might as well have a few beer lao. So that was always a good place. Um Golden Triangle, like, you know, never been the biggest fan of, of you know that what's it called again? Sop Sop Ruak. You yes. you guys would probably know better than me. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit bling, if we're being honest. I mean, so apologies to to Thai listeners, but you know, it, it's kind of a bit commercial, it feels a bit like land's end in the UK. I mean, it's it's a very beautiful area, but the way that developed is you know has been quite sort of uh, overdeveloped and also on the lao side you've got the big casino and in myanmar that's that's probably the only bit of the mekong i've seen in myanmar in fact because it is so remote over there is that funny spit of land o- opposite uh, you know the golden triangle where there's a there's also right. a burmese casino there which you can kind of get a boat across to and things like that so i've been on the lao side i've been on the burmese side briefly and i've been on the thai side but as i say i mean you know the kind of evocative romantic idea of the Golden Triangle isn't necessarily epitomized once you get there but there are some beautiful properties there obviously you got that incredible um, is it Four Seasons Camp and uh, the wonderful Anantara so no I mean it is there. I should say there's some beautiful places there, but just the town itself was kind of like, oh, <laughs> that wasn't what I expected. But yeah, I mean, I, I do love that boat trip and uh, I would, you know, I'd happily do that boat trip again anytime once, you know, once we can move again in Laos and uh, COVID restrictions are, uh, are lifted. And then further down, I mean, the other place that is quite quirky and different because not many tourists go there is, is Sayaburi. Uh, sometimes spelled hmm. Zayaburi, Sayabuli, etc. And even though it's not specifically the Mekong, there is one wonderful destination just outside that town which you probably come across is the Elephant Conservation Center. So that is a, okay. is a really excellent project and I think they've been one of the first places uh, in Southeast Asia or certainly in Laos to manage to breed uh, captive elephants. So that's really good news because that's always wow. very tricky to manage. So that that's a great location. Yeah, it's just it's about 10 kilometers outside saiburi on a on a huge uh, reservoir so it's on an island in a reservoir really really impressive place and, and highly recommended to people that that's worth the detour to the mekong town of saiburi alone
1: mm, yeah i see that okay interesting how about any standout experiences uh, on the mekong in, in Thailand, further south or maybe cambodia
2: yeah i mean coming down into thailand i mean i i, I guess you know the, the classic place for everyone on the Mekong is uh, Vieng Chan, and then just across the river, not so far, Nong Khai. And you know, as a young backpacker, those were two destinations where I spent some time. I think uh, you know, Vieng Chan got a fantastic setting on the banks of the river, and you know that you've got everything from the the beer Lao factory down the road, and and you know some some great sights there. I think you know a lot of tourists skip vieng Chan because they're focused on luang prabang and vang vieng or even si pandon and 4000 islands but actually if you think about the the restaurant scene the dining scene the bar scene the cafe scene vientiane is a really cool capital and as long as you you know you're not you don't go in with too high expectations you know you're not going there to see kind of world class sites necessarily but it is just a really great city with a laid back vibe and then across yeah i mean you know Nong khai and in thailand's got a really great atmosphere and 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 a very laid-back place. Going further down, I mean, another place that's, that's really cool and, and deserves more visitors and is beginning to get them in the last few years is uh, Takek. So Takek is, you know, gateway to, to the karst landscape of, of central Laos, uh, Kamuun province. And there you've got that famous uh, river cave Tam Kong Lo, you know, which is a seven kilometre river cave. That's really beautiful. And you've got the famous uh, backpacker loop, as they call it, the loop, where you can rent a motorbike and basically sort of travel around through these cast limestone pinnacles for about three or four days. But yeah, Takek itself is very understated, but very charming. It's got lovely old French colonial buildings, slightly dilapidated. And so it's got a couple of nice sort of simple boutique hotels, like the uh, there's an interior hotel there and so that's really cool but opposite just over the river you've also got uh, Nakhon nakon phnom which is a is Great. a very charming, charming thai town you know that's uh, again relatively untouristed compared to uh, the more the the big hitters of thailand if you like i mean and i suppose that's it really when you look at the mekong on the thai side you're really kind of in isan and you know the, the perhaps the more lao uh, oriented parts of the country and quite a traditional rural lifestyle so i think certainly for people that have either been to Thailand several times and they want to see something more off the beaten track or for people who are, you know, looking for traditional culture, then I think that, you know, I think though following the Mekong on the Thai side can also be very rewarding. You know, you're getting a, a real glimpse into a more traditional Thailand, a more authentic Thailand, perhaps.
0: So that's good stuff, Nick. And it's been a while since I put together a Google map for one of our show notes. So, uh, you know, everybody go visit our, our website and uh, we'll have links to the map and links to our other shows that Nick has been on. Um, but Nick's just across town from me here in Cambodia. And we were both just up in Siem Reap and didn't see each other. And, uh, but we have been on the lake together. Uh, we, we did that flotilla boat party on the Tonle Sap that one time. What's your favorite Mekong, what's your favorite Mekong spot here in Cambodia?
2: Yeah, Cambodia, obviously close to home, um, probably the, the section of the Mekong I know best. I mean, I'd say, you know, crossing the border from Laos, you've got one of the best stretches of the Mekong in its entire length. You know, you've got the the Ramsar wetlands, the flooded forest. That's just incredible because that whole, you know, these are huge trees that basically go underwater for several months of the year. And that means their root systems have been sort of, petrified into strange shapes and you've got just just it's amazingly uh, surreal you know it looks like some sort of fairy tale landscape if you travel through there in the in the wet season you don't see much of it you just see a lot of pointy trees sticking out of the water in the dry season you see the whole root systems so you see these incredible roots that are all flowing in one direction because of the water pressure and you've got sandbars and sandbanks you've got uh, bird life, you can camp on some of these islands with uh, different communities, like the community of Vunsaï. Um, so there's different sort of seabets, uh, community-based ecotourism organisations. You can also see dolphins in that area. There's dwindling numbers, sadly, but there's a dolphin pool near the Lao border, and there's another pool near Os So that section, what, what's a great shame, unfortunately, and it shows you the, the kind of uh, the double-edged sword of progress, is that back in the days when they first opened that border, maybe Around 2000, 2001, everybody took the boat because the road was in a terrible state. The road was, you know, hadn't been uh, fixed or maintained since the 1960s, and you know, civil war, U.S. bombing, etc. So everybody basically got in either very fast, you know, long tail boats or slow boats, and they got to appreciate the Ramsar wetlands, the bird life, the sandbars, and everything going down to Stung Treng. Sadly, when the road was fixed, everybody switched to the road. So now you actually have to choose to go by boat and you have to book a boat and some obviously tour companies offer that but that, that really is amazing and there's also a couple of Stung Treng outfits op- offering uh, kayaking through the flooded forest and so on. Then as you go further south you know you, you continue some nice rapid areas uh, between Stung Treng and krache and you've got some fantastic islands there. I mean Again, you, you sort of think of Sipan Don in southern Laos, which is beautiful, the 4,000 islands. But it is, it is quite touristy in places like Don Cone and, and uh, Don Det. You know, there's sort of probably 100 plus guest houses and so on. The Cambodian islands, which are every bit as beautiful, there's nobody. You know, there's just a few <laughs> farmers and a, and a few, you know, a few buffalo tenders. The only island that's got any kind of tourism of any significance and its very small scale is, is um, Koh Trong, opposite um, Khrachei. Koh Trong is really beautiful. I highly recommend that. It's a it's the island that you see when you're sitting on the riverfront in Kratie, straight across from you. Beautiful some of the best sunsets in Cambodia over the back of the Mekong and Koh Trong. But you can get a little mm-hmm. boat across there and you've got a couple of uh, community homestays there, really nicely run. One of them is a 1960 wooden house. You know, it's still got the date above the door and everything. Ko Trong Community Homestay 1. You've also got a very nice boutique hotel, Rajaburi, run by the same people that run Terre Rouge in Ratnakiri. So that island is a, is a lovely place. You don't have to, you know, you can stay there. That's fantastic and rewarding. But even if you're staying in Crache, you can pop across with a rented bicycle and you can ride around the whole perimeter of the island in about a couple of hours. And it's famous for uh, its pomelos, you know, it's kind of a, mm. you know, over-large grapefruit. So you can go into people's gardens and they'll serve you fresh pomelo. It's such a friendly island. The people there, I mean, Cambodians have a reputation for being super friendly, as do most of the people of Southeast Asia. But particularly on that island, everyone's kind of, hello, welcome. You know, you, you seem to be everywhere you go, you're invited into houses. So that's a, a really special spot as well.
0: Sorry, my tip for Trong is to bring a swimsuit because the hotel there has a swimming pool that will let you use. uh, You can buy lunch. It's a good lunch stop and a dip in the pool.
1: That is a very good tip. You're scratching my itch a little bit for travel without actually going, Nick. Kind of going, thinking broadly on this now, what is it you love about the Mekong overall? If travelers are going to come to this region, why should they include some piece of Mekong in their itinerary?
2: I think, I mean, just the name alone, it's so evocative, isn't it? It's so exotic, the Mekong, you know, the mother river. I mean, it's, you know, if people have heard about it, even people who don't travel much. The Mekong's one of those iconic rivers. You know, if you ask people to name world rivers, the Amazon Nile, the Mekong would probably be in most people's top five. Um, you know, I think it is still whatever it is—the eleventh or twelfth longest river in the world. I think, for me, if I'm looking at it as a whole, or at least the, you know, the southern, you know, the central and southern half that most people go to, um, from sort of uh, southern China downwards, I guess it, it's the diversity of yeah, cultures, landscapes, peoples, uh, cuisine, etc. You know, you think about somewhere like you know, north of Luang Prabang, those narrow gorges and high mountains. And then you think about, what we started off by talking about the pancake flat green patchwork of the Delta. I mean, it's so different. You know, you really have got such a study in contrast. Um, One of the great trips, I mean, I've been a tour leader and a tour lecturer for many years as well. And I I used to work with different companies um, leading trips themed along the Mekong, like Mekong Journeys. So I'd Mm. either start in the Golden Triangle and finish in Saigon or vice versa. And, you know, just remember the customer's reaction, the client's reaction as as they traveled from place to place and they they could almost not believe it was still the same river you know what you're seeing in one area is so completely different to the other area and as i say that you know that and like we mentioned the flooded forests near stung treng i mean you know just just all these different things that are just like wow factors you know it, it's all one river and it, it just keeps on delivering so i would say you know if you if you are a fan of rivers uh, and a fan of river travel that the mekong is definitely up there i mean i would say a good starting point is either a, a you know a twin centre holiday in Laos and Cambodia, um, or combining Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, as as many people do. Obviously, the the challenge uh, has been the, the past 18 months, <laughs> how to travel and how to cross borders. But as travel reopens, you know certainly um, it will you know be possible again um, in 2022 for people to move around uh, within Southeast Asia. We hope and believe, and so I think yeah you know something that takes in the greatest hits of Golden Triangle, Luang Prabang, Sipendong, Southern Laos, Kratie, Dolphins, Phnom Penh, the bustling capital. Don't forget the Tonle Sap and Siem Riet. You know, the Tonle Sap is part of the Mekong ecosystem. It's, I, I say it's like the lungs or the gills of the Mekong. You know, that's, that's how the Mekong breathes in and out. And that's why, you know, we mentioned earlier, it's a little bit in danger or under threat because of all these uh, climatic issues and, and, and environmental issues and so on. The, the, the Tonle Sap is so important to Cambodia, not just Cambodia, to the Mekong. You know, it's the it's the nursery mm. for the Mekong. It's where the fish spawn. It's the flooded forest. It's all of that. So we know that not just Cambodia, the whole region has to look to the Tonle Sap and 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 do their best to work towards protecting it because it's important for the future of the very the, the very river itself. And then you move in, you know, into Vietnam, and you've got this this bustling. Uh, patchwork of emerald greens, and you've got you know the option to to cruise through along through different towns and villages. So I, I think yeah, when you add it all together, you know, if you were to spend a three-week trip going from Golden Triangle to Saigon, that is yeah. incredible. You know, you are seeing some of the greatest highlights of the Southeast Asia region. I mean, straight away you've got Luang Prabang and Siem Reap off the bat without even doing anything, let alone the fact you include two of the most dynamic cities in the region. Phnom Penh and Saigon, not forgetting you would probably begin in Bangkok because that's likely where you'll fly into. So three of the the most iconic cities in Southeast Asia and some of the most important cultural sites. So yeah, to me, it's it's a no brainer. The Mekong is just a a fantastic lifeline to build an amazing trip around.
0: Well, you painted a pretty great picture of the region for our listeners, I think. And uh, that new Lonely Planet where you did the Mekong River Basin for Vietnam, we'll have links to that on our show notes along with the google map which i hope nick you will share the location of the pirate islands for us because uh i i was able to find all the other (laughs) pins and i was kind of impressed that i can spell a lot of these lao and Thai and even chinese city names that as you're saying them i'm pretty good at at spelling them and finding them on the map so we'll have a good map there and you're always up to something interesting and new so so what's up next what are you what are you going to be doing in the early new year
2: yeah, what's coming next? I've got a variety of projects going on. We've got, so yeah, working with some BBC TV shows at the moment here in Cambodia. I'm doing some work with, um, still doing some work with the World Bank on the Cambodia Sustainable Landscape and Ecotourism Project. That's the Cardamons and Tonle Sap. Uh, doing uh, some some different videos for people, including the Ministry of Tourism here, a, a kind of reopening video on the reopening of tourism in Cambodia now that we've thrown the doors open, which is a, a fantastic step. So, yeah, basically the usual mix of, <laughs> of writing, video, uh, locations, scouting, etc. But we are certainly looking forward to uh, welcoming visitors back, not just to Cambodia, but Southeast Asia. Obviously, Thailand very much uh, open these days or, or as you know, as, more open than most. Cambodia, more open than most at the moment. Are we waiting for for Laos and Vietnam to catch up. But the fact that the Thailand and Cambodia have shown the way, I think, means that uh, the rest of Southeast Asia will be back on the map safely in 2022. And uh, yeah, we just can't wait to see people back here and share it with uh, the rest of the world.
1: Thanks, Nick. You are an amazing guest storyteller and guy. Greatly appreciate you making time for us. And I can't wait to hit so many places you put on my list.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me again. Fourth time lucky.
0: All right. You know, it's funny. Uh, it's great to have Nick on, but he, he kind of talks fast just because he's got so much to say. Like he gave us so much great information about so many different places to go. And, and it was great to follow along on the Google map and see where he was talking about because it kind of inspires me to, to do some more exploring, especially in the, the, the Vietnamese area down in the Mekong across the border from me.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I was trying to follow it, but there was a lot of places he mentioned I've a never heard of and b I couldn't find on the Google Map as we were listening, and it's the same every time we have him when he was talking about Lao, I was trying to follow along and there's now places marked on my Lao <laughs> yep. uh, Google Map. That I want to go that I'd never heard of before. So he is really so fantastic with information and paints the pictures really, really well. And he's he's got me pumped. I just I wish I could just travel forever and not have to worry about life and these things called work and all that sort of stuff. So thinking about a few areas on your Mekong bucket list, what might those be, Trevor?
0: Well, it's obviously starts with Pirate Island, because now that Nick's mentioned a place <laughs> called Pirate Island, I'm going to get my parents. I bet they'll want to come out and try and visit that early next year. Let's put that on the bucket list. Um, otherwise, you know, I've always wanted to do the 4,000 Islands, which is uh, just north of me up in southern Laos. And then Khai. Uh, which Nick mm-hmm. mentioned uh, and I've known about for decades living in Thailand. Nongkai is always a place that I've wanted to visit and uh, and I've never had the uh, opportunity to. Um, so that would be pretty cool. How about you?
1: The one I've mentioned many times on this show is I really, really want to follow the river leaving from Phnom Penh and heading north all the way up to the border with Laos. There's some really cool looking uh, French hotels along the river. Nick mentioned the island opposite Kratzi where there is one that looks neat. So I just love to not rush and take my time kind of following the river north to that border. I'd like to do the Mekong basin in Vietnam. I've never been. I've been to Ho Chi Minh City many times. I've been as far north as uh, Hanoi, but I've never been through the Mekong basin. So I'd love to spend a week down there like he talked about. And also, you know, he it's not officially the Mekong, but he mentioned the Tonle Sap river and lake and I've never actually been from Phnom Penh up that river and onto the lake that way. So I'd love to do yeah. that as well.
0: Hey, you know, mentioning the Koh Trong and the islands on the Mekong here in Cambodia, they, you can do stand up paddle boarding and camping on those islands, uh, with Annie from stand up Cambodia. She goes, she organizes a trip every year in like March, I think. And, mm-hmm. uh, that would be something cool to do. Like Nick was saying, like these there's islands like this in Vietnam that are incredibly popular, but, or, or in Southern Laos, sorry. Um, but in Cambodia, they're just like beaches you can camp on and there's uh, river dolphins and it uh, looks like a spectacular experience to stand up paddle down that river. So that's on my list.
1: You and I have talked about that stretch of the river north of Phnom Penh and it's in top three of places I'm gonna go. I've gotta recommend one book. If people like history, and they want to really imagine how hard travel was at a point. There's a book called uh, Mad About the Mekong, and it tells the story of the Mekong River Commission, which I think was around the 1870s, and it was a a bunch of French people who decided if they could map the Mekong, then the French would just own it. So they started in Ho Chi Minh, and they literally pulled their way upriver, up the sides, and made their way into what is now Myanmar, and along the way... I mean, people die of malaria, people leave, new people join, someone needs money and walks a couple months back to Siem Reap to go to a French consulate and comes back with a chest of money. But that's an amazing book. And, you know, I would say out of all my Asia travels, time spent on the Mekong River for me is always a highlight and always magical. And I want to go to more places along it. I, I love this episode. Nick got me jazzed. If you're coming, include the Mekong somewhere in your trip.
0: Yeah. And go to our website, uh, talktravelasia.com. I'm looking at a long list of links about Nick Gray and all Nick Gray's work and all the information that you can get about your travels here in the region along the Mekong if you'd like to do so. You could also become a patron by clicking on the donate button on our webpage or going to patreon.com and uh, helping out financially because we appreciate the support of our sponsors and uh, we do it for the love of travel and to talk with each other and share our guests insight with you so if you could help us out that would be great otherwise i'll be back in two weeks talking with scott about some other fun exciting asian destination
1: give us a nice review thanks for listening and we'll be sharing again in two weeks thanks for joining us on talk travel asia we look forward to sharing with you again soon Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Anchor Tom?